Good morning. It's really great to see you and you and you and you. Good to have you here today. We are in the final uh, episode of a series that we've entitled Distorted. Before I give anything away, I want to begin with two questions to get us kind of thinking on this one together. So the first question is this on the screen. How many of you would say that life would be a little better if you had a little more money? Don't, you don't have to raise your hand for these. Just, just get you thinking. All right, the second question is a lot like it. How many of you would say that life would be a lot better if you had a lot more money? I hear the chuckles, and we kind of can resonate with that a little bit, and we think those things. Today's topic, Distorted, is, the title is, The Root of All Evil. There's frequently quoted wisdom in the Bible that is often quoted actually in a distorted way. And some of you are nodding your head. You already know, oh, you're tracking with me. Oh, I know which one this one is. And if you're not, here is where it comes from. It's in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 6. And I've actually just given you how it's frequently quoted in a distorted way. It's frequently quoted this way. Money is the root of all evil. That's a distortion. It's a partial quote. And yet, a lot of people quote it as if it's true, and they kind of point the finger at us when we're, you know, feel like a little bit more money would help us, and a lot more money would help us a lot. And then they say, you know, money is the root of all evil. And we want to, by the end of today, say, no, 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 no. That's not the correct quote. Here's the whole quote. It's in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not like the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some of us can come up with evil without even having money. All right? So we can come up with evil in other ways. So this is the, the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, um, here's the funny thing about this quote. Even we have it, Correct. Even when we know it's not that money is the problem, it's the love of money is the problem. We always think that this verse applies to someone else. Okay? We almost never see this verse as really applying to us. Because, you know, I don't really love money in a wrongful way. I, I don't really, I'm not so attached to money. I'm, I'm not greedy. Greed is that guy, or that person. I've, I've really, I've got my act pretty well together. I heard it said recently at a global leadership conference that greed is one of those things that we can't see in the mirror. It made me think, it's like, wow. He actually named something else, I couldn't remember what that one was. Probably was one that I couldn't see in the mirror. Um, but it's like, this is how it relates to this verse. Often we think, yeah, that's not a problem for me. Uh, greed is not a problem for me. The love of money is not a problem for me. Well, just in case you're not sure if it's a problem, here's kind of a test case verse that sort of gives us a, a test that we can apply to ourselves to see if I love money a little too much. And it comes from the wisest man in the Old Testament, Solomon, writing in Ecclesiastes, and here's what he writes. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. 
Now, this quote <clears throat> should start to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. It's like, I, that first question, how many of you think that if you have a little bit more money, life will be a little bit better? And internally, I go, and how many of you, if you had a lot more money, it seems like life would be a lot better? And I want to go, okay? And this is saying, okay, how, how, much, how much is enough? How much is enough to where you'd go, uh, more money is not what makes it better? According to this verse, it actually says, okay, if you wrote down on a piece of paper, you said, if I had this amount, then I'm good. What this verse is saying is, if you have a little bit too much love for money, after you got that amount, you'll come up with a new amount. Just a matter of time. You love it. You have that amount. Now that amount is yours. You have it. Now you're thinking, well, if I had a little bit more, it'd be a little bit better. If I had a lot more, it'd be a lot better. And your more just escalates. So our focus today reads this way. Here's our focus. If you love money, you will not be satisfied with more money because with more, your appetite increases. I know I'm speaking to somebody else that's not in this room. I know that you don't feel like that's you. But I'm hoping that as we go through this lesson today, this distorted message and this distorted idea that I don't have a problem, that's not me, will start to go, ooh, hmm, he's starting to make me feel a little uncomfortable. Well, okay. Let's take that uncomfortable feeling before God and see what he does with it together. Now, we've been looking at three basic principles all four of these sessions. We really spent a lot of time with it in the first session. I've just been rolling through it in the next sessions. There's three points that are on your outline that you can just not bother to fill in. And the first is we interpret the Bible by understanding the context. Simplified interpretation of the Bible, understand the context. Secondly, interpret the Bible with the Bible. Thirdly, apply what you learn. So the context idea is, and we learned this from the children's church after I preached the first lesson together, they, they had this 2020 context clarity. If you want 2020 vision, you want clarity in the scripture, go 20 verses earlier and 20 verses after, and that distorted passage will suddenly become less distorted. Make sure you get the context of before and after and see that truth in context. We've been applying that principle. Secondly, interpret the Bible with the Bible. Even the devil came to Jesus quoting the Bible. He distorted the truths to try to trip Jesus up. The way Jesus dealt with it was by quoting the Bible correctly. By quoting other portions of the Bible, he could bring correction to the distorted quote. And so we've been doing the same. Interpret the Bible with the Bible. And then apply what you learn. So this is what we've been working on. And so we're going to do the 2020 uh, principle of clarity and context together by looking at the early verses and looking at verses after it and try to understand what Paul is getting at when he's talking to his protege, Timothy, when he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, I want you to open your Bibles, and if you didn't have a Bible that's easily open, grab a Bible from the chair in front of you. If you're in your front row, you're going to have to reach around you, break your shoulder, and ask somebody to hand you a Bible. Turn to page number 831. We're going to be in 1 Timothy, looking at the context a little bit together. Before we begin, I'm going to have you fill in a couple of blanks, kind of see where we're going with this, because I'm going to put a summary statement about how this whole context thing fits together. So point number one is this. The big theme 
is not money. The big theme is godliness. And we're going to see this as we back up and pick up the context earlier together. The big theme is not money, but godliness. Hope you're there. I'm not putting the Timothy passages on the screen, at least not very many of them. So look at 1 Timothy 6. We're going to back up to verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6 reads, But godliness with contentment is great gain. So this section is really more about godliness than it is about money. Remember those two questions that I asked earlier? I have two more questions with a slight alteration. They'll sound familiar, but they're going to be different questions now. Here's question one. Ready? On the screen. How many of you would say that life would be a little better if you were a little more godly? Now, let's make sure you, you understand what I mean by godly. Godliness is a characteristic where your moral attributes match God's moral attributes a little bit more closely. Now, you will never be eternal and self-existent and God in that sense, but godliness sense of his moral attributes are more and more your moral attributes. His goodness transfers into your life and you reflect his goodness. So how many of you would say that life would be a little better if you were a little more godly? Can you guess what the next question is? All right, here we go. How many of you would say that life would be a lot better if you were a lot more godly? Okay, three hands. <laughs> Let's try that one again. All right, thank you. That's where we're seeing this passage, the context of the passage, what the thrust of the passage is all about, that he really is after the character qualities that bring true joy, true life. Later on at the very end, he says, the life that is truly life. That's what this whole passage is about. So the big theme in this section is not money. The big theme is actually godliness. Now, as we keep reading, we're now at verse 7. Take a look there at verse 7. 1 Timothy 6, 7, we read, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. There's all kinds of jokes and humor about that. You know, no hearses with trailer hitches. And that kind of thing. And you can't bring it up with you. And the one story, uh, I wasn't going to go into this, but now that I started. Uh, the, the guy who's uh, really into money, you know, he packs his suitcase full of uh, bills and just uh, sticks it up in the attic. And his wife says, wow, what's the deal with that? He says, well, when I die, I'm going to grab it on my way up. He dies. And so she walks up to the attic. Suitcase is still there. And she says, I could have told him, put it in the basement. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, just, uh, <clears throat> strike that. I didn't say that joke. That wasn't really, we're not, we're not really doing that one. So the, the big theme, for we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. Now, godliness actually goes with us. Money doesn't. The character attributes go with us. The, there's all the value that comes out of that that we take with us. I think that's the point. That's why he says, hey, you can't take this with you. Why are you spending so much energy on this thing that's so, it's like a vapor mist that is gone. And we're talking about eternity here and building an eternity here. Focus on what is eternal instead of 
this value that's so little. That's what he's getting at, I think. The big theme is not money, but godliness. Now, point number two, you want to fill these blanks in. Point number two is this. Contentment makes a poor person rich, and discontentment makes a rich person poor. Think about that one. I'll say it again for you. Contentment makes a poor person rich, and discontentment makes a rich person poor. All right, two of you agree with me. I see that. Thank you for those bobbing heads. All right. 1 Timothy 6, 8 is the next verse as we're looking at verses in context here. In verse 8 we read, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. I'm down for that. If we just have food and clothing and my iPhone, oh, and Netflix, oh, and my car, and... And, and the list goes and, 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 and each of us has our own list. Can we really wrap our minds around that? Okay, well, I could be content, I could be content if all I had was food and clothing. And a bed? And a house? We just get, we keep wanting to add to that and we will not be content if it's just food and clothing. Just, really? Just food and clothing? Wow, Paul has something that helps people who are poor to be rich. That contentment does not come from more. Contentment comes from something else. Can we really wrap our heads around that? Here's a quote I want to put on the screen. Contentment is being happy with what you have. Discontentment focuses on what you don't have. Rich people, go ahead and think about the other guy now, okay? Do you know of a rich person who has way more than you that wants more and is not content? Yeah. It's not really a matter of how much you have, whether you're content or discontent, because if you've got the love of money and you have way more than a lot of other people, those people could actually be more content than you because you want more. And that's an interesting concept. So I put a, a kind of a larger quote on there that is kind of a surprise to a lot of us. Wealthy people are not very surprised by the fact that people in third world countries have so little. A lot of wealthy people travel to third world countries and they're not surprised by that that they have so little. But they are surprised by the fact that people who have so little actually seem to be happy. They don't get it. How is it that they're happy? And maybe even more happy than I am. Wait, you can't be happy. You have nothing. I have everything. And I'm not happy. How how come you're happy? This happens to world travelers who are wealthy. It rattles their cage. It causes their mind to go into a tailspin. It's like, what is it that they've got that I don't have? And they start thinking things through. A lot of people on short-term mission trips start to change how they spend, change how they think, change how they live, and they gain happiness with some of those changes. It's like, whoa, what is up with that? Really interesting. Let's keep reading in context. Now we're at 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, and we read this. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
There are so many of these traps. One of the traps is Powerball. Okay? And it is a trap that offers sudden wealth. At least it sort of has that promise. And so people are willing to invest in the option of sudden wealth. Um, I did some research on the internet and there's a book out there that the, the guy who used to be a financial planner for lottery winners wrote a book and the book is about how unhappy the lottery winners are and how it's common that life is destroyed with most lottery winners rather than improved their life go down, goes down the tube. So from this book and from uh, some, an article I read about, I haven't actually read the book, here are some quotes from actual lottery winners who they won it big time and here's what they say. My life was hijacked by the lottery. I wish that we had torn the ticket up. That person that said I wish we had torn the ticket up was the wife of a of a guy who won, and then he agreed. I also wish that I'd torn it up. There, I think there's daughter OD'd, she's dead. He, he, he got himself so messed over in terms of his character decisions, the, the marriage fell apart, everything is just destroyed. And they said that, I, I wish we would've just torn that ticket up. The next quote, I'd have been better off broke. These are people who, the next quote is, these are people who you've loved deep down and they're turning into vampires trying to suck the life out of me. All the people that this person that won the lottery ever cared about now is her enemy. And they're angry at her that they can't benefit from all of their, her winnings and their little vampires sucking her life out. And she, and she shared a ton and there's no winning. And she just felt like she was more unhappy with her winnings than before she had the money. Very strange thinking for us because we think if we have a lot more, we'll be a lot better off. But that's not the source of better off. And that's what Paul is trying to point us to here. Now, we've read a bunch of verses and we're now up to the verse that we started with. We're now in context in our verse for the morning. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I, I wanna clarify, because last week we talked about the prosperity gospel, and that's a distortion. Now, I wanna clarify that this week, another distortion on the flip side, which is the opposite extreme that's still common across the globe, is the poverty gospel. The poverty gospel is, is, is the idea, and it's a distortion of the biblical truth, that everybody should be poor or they will be unhap unhappy, that Jesus came to preach poverty, that only if you give it all away can you live in the kingdom. But we're going to discover as we read this text that that's an impossible ideal and that God is not saying that money is the problem. God's saying our attachment to the money, our love of the money is the problem. So don't just try to get rid of it so that you are completely destitute and let everybody else take care of you. How does that work? As if that's godly. Is God poor? So is it more godly to be poor? No, the poverty gospel is a distortion also. 
And so we need to kind of address that. What Jesus knows is that the love of money is the problem. He says you can't love money and God. You can't have them both because they're in competition. If your heart is all wrapped around money, it's in direct competition with your heart being wrapped around, all, around God. So you have to look at money as a tool that God has blessed you with and look for contentment somewhere else besides money. And Jesus had a lot to say about that. Now, I'm gonna have a skip down. We're going to the after the verse clarity here. So we're gonna skip down to verse 17. Verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, 17 reads this way. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I don't feel like God is saying here, okay, those of you who are rich, get rid of everything. He's actually saying those of you who are rich, quit minimizing your wealth and apologizing for your wealth. God gave that to you. Count yourself blessed. It's okay. God blessed you and he even blessed you so that you could enjoy him. Wow, does it really say that in the Bible? Oh, I like this one. But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So it's not just money that he gives us for enjoyment. Every form of enjoyment ultimately comes from God unless it's twisted enjoyment, okay? Now, I have a phrase highlighted up there. Those who are rich. Everybody point to the one that's rich in here. Just kidding, just kidding. Because <laughs> we, we tend to think that's not me. I'm not rich. But I just want us to think a little bit here. How many of us own a car? Go ahead, how many of us own a car? Those of us who raised our hand are now in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. Only 10% of the globe owns a car. So say it with me, I am rich. Okay, I am rich. So we own a car. I just wanna go through a scenario just to kinda help us, not everybody owns a car, not everybody here is rich, I'm not saying that. But more of us in here are rich, and this applies to more of us in here than we are comfortable thinking about, because we always think, I'm not rich. He's rich, and she's rich, and they're rich. I'm not rich. All right. I get in my car that I own, and I decide to take my wife out to dinner. I drive by multiple restaurants to pick the one that I want. And I look down the menu, oh, man. And I pick the item that, oh, this is going to be good. And then a server serves me and her like we're kings and queens. At every turn, my, my water gets a little bit lower. I don't have to get up. It's like, oh, here's some more water. You know, I, I know they're in for the tip too, but hold on here, hold on. They're serving me like I'm a king and she's a queen, and I'm getting this delightful meal, and I'm feeling really good, and we drive home. I'm driving in my car, and I come up to my house, and I reach up and push my car house button. And my car house door opens up. And I drive into my car house, and I push the button. And my car house door shuts. My car house is better than most houses 
in the world. And that's just housing my car. And my car is climate controlled. And I come out of my climate controlled car and I step into my climate controlled house. Who's rich? Okay, and then I go into my living room and I'm feeling pretty good and I find my chair, my chair, my spot. And next to my chair and my spot is a remote. And I hit the remote, actually there's more than one, I hit the remotes and my flat screen TV comes on, boom, with my sound. That fills the room. Wait, pause. And I can do that because I'm watching Netflix. <laughs> and then I can go into my kitchen and open up the climate control box and find, actually mine is, the climate control box and find my favorite frozen dessert. And I pull my favorite frozen dessert out and it's somewhere tucked around all the frozen meat. And I get the frozen dessert out and I dish it up and I sit in my chair and I enjoy the show. <laughs> Who's rich? I'm rich. And then after a while I go to bed and man, that bed just is my <laughs> bed. It's perfect. And I sleep through the night and I get into my warm shower. I put on my coffee, I start my day, and I get out of my shower and I walk into my clothes house. <laughs> my clothes house has a bottom story and a top story, and I'm running through my clothes in my clothes house to figure out what I'm gonna wear, and I look at it all, I think, I don't have a thing to. You're rich too? You know what I'm talking about? We have rows and rows and rows of clothing and drawers and drawers and drawers of clothing and boxes and closets of food. In the other world, the third world, if they walk through our house and walk through our day, we would blow their minds. They can't even imagine that much food at the fingertips. They can't even imagine that much clothing that you go through, and they are shocked that you think, they don't have anything to wear. <laughs> they have one pair of clothes. And if they're lucky, a second pair so they can wash their regular pair. That's the rest of the globe. And we live at a time where our routines are the wealthiest, most luxurious routines in all of history ever. When Paul wrote this to Timothy, command those who are rich, we surpass the richest of rich. I didn't even go to the place that's kind of uncomfortable. You have your own little private bathroom, your own little... You can flush the stink and stuff away, out of sight, out of mind, out of nose. We are rich. 
We're rich in history. We're rich in our location. We're privileged and blessed. Now, I'm not saying any of this to any of you to make you feel guilty. That isn't it. We need to feel blessed. But with that blessing, we need to hear this command that Paul tells to Timothy to command his people. Hey, rich people, let me command you right now. If you want to be happy, you want to be content, you want to be godly, you want your life to count, you need, in this present world, not to be arrogant, not to put your hope in wealth. You're not secure because of your bank account. You're not secure because of your house. You're not secure and blessed because you are smarter. You are better. That isn't it. God has positioned you to be a blessing to others. Every blessing is given so that you can bless. Put your hope in God who richly provides you with everything for your enjoyment. I mean, it's the same lesson we learned from our mamas when we were kindergarten kids. Share. It didn't change. Love. This is not all about you. You're not the center of the universe. Share. Aren't you glad you came? I mean, first of all, all of a sudden you go like, oh, wow, I am blessed. And secondly, now we've got to figure out what we're going to do with that blessing. Point number three, one thing we've got to do is we've got to escape the chokehold. Escape the chokehold that wealth has on our neck. We can't even breathe because wealth chokes us. This is what Jesus said. I think I can put this one on the screen, Mark 4, 19. Jesus said, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. We are more vulnerable than people who have little to have wealth lie to us. Do you see the phrase? The deceitfulness of wealth. Wealth lies to us. And if we buy this lie, watch out. Because the lie says, I need more to be happy. I can deliver security. I can deliver happiness to you. I can deliver all the goods to you as long as you have enough of me. Who am I? I am money. If you have enough of me, if you have enough wealth, if you have enough, I can deliver the goods. I can make you be content. I can give you happiness. I can give you joy and God says, Jesus says, don't buy it. Because when you get more, you're going to want more. And you're not going to be happier. You will continue to have your discontentment level rise with your rising income and rising luxury and rising wealth. You're having a shriveled heart and a chokehold on life, which is truly life, when you think, I need more. And you know where it hits us the hardest? When somebody else could be blessed by that which we have, but we can't give it to them because I need more. This is the deceitfulness of wealth. So we've talked about the big theme is not money, but godliness. Contentment makes a poor person rich, and discontentment makes a rich person poor. 
We've got to escape the chokehold. Here's a quote on the screen. When you believe the deceitfulness of wealth, you won't maximize what you have for God's kingdom because you believe you need more for your kingdom. And you think that your income stream is your little kingdom that you built and you have plans to expand your kingdom and your level of bliss, your level of happiness with your increased wealth. And it's got a chokehold on you that is self-centered and deceiving, thinking If I have a little bit more, I can be a little bit happier. If I have a lot more, I'll be a lot happier. And God says that is a lie. Only Jesus will cause your heart to get out of the chokehold as it's shriveling up. When you say, it all came from you, I'm not taking any of it with me. You are the source. You are the provider. You give me contentment. Contentment does not come from the wealth. I'm trusting you, and I want to live for your kingdom, not my kingdom. Now your contentment level can begin to rise. Most of us have personal example stories where we shook off the chokehold. Some of us still need to develop that story in us. I remember, I was already a pastor. I remember I shifted from being an associate pastor, youth pastor, to being the pastor of this church early in my ministry here. I came out of school and most of my friends were in ministry. Most of my friends were in uh, ministries where they were literally on, on the mission field in global works and I was sending personal checks to them. Here's what I did. I took the idea of a tithe, 10% of my income, and I broke it into parts, and I started picking and choosing how the parts of the tithe would be given. And I thought, well, you know, our church already gives me my income, so it seems kind of silly to give my tithe right back to the church. So I divided out my tithe to all my buddy friends in their mission field areas, and then I began to learn that the tithe is not mine to choose from. It's like, oh, cred. And then I had to make some adjustments. Oh, cred. Our church was, you know, only 70 or 75 people strong, and I took a pay cut to come to our church for my youth pastor salary. And just because you, you know, take a big chance on this 30-year-old kid. And now I had to adjust because the lesson told me that the spirit of poverty was squeezing me if I couldn't just let go and give 10%. It's just a starting point. Let go. You say you trust God for salvation, but you can't trust God with your pocketbook? Oh, crud. Okay. And literally, I mean, we're looking at how the income's matching the bills and all that's coming together. It's like, okay, do I really believe this? So you just make an adjustment. I couldn't cut out my missionary friends. I just have to go, okay, those are discretionary offerings. Those are what I pick and choose what I give. And now I gotta come up with a 10% to give that's God's money. I can't choose. I just honor him first with my first things first. And as soon as I did it, it was like, (sighs) all the bills were paid. God takes care of things. This is a generous church. 
Income went up. I never miss the money I give. In fact, I think I'd miss a lot more money if I didn't. He makes the leftover percentage go further than the 100% would have gone previously. He says, test me on this. Here's what Paul says, verse 18 and 19. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. He's telling those of us who are rich that God commands us. He's telling the preacher to command those who are rich to be generous because to be generous is the solution to the poverty that's choking your soul. You can have a chokehold on your throat when you're making 10 times what I'm making. The only answer is not making more. The only answer is giving. Be generous. Let the chokehold go. Only people who don't feel poor can give. God, you are sourcing everything to me. I trust you. I can give. Gone with the chokehold. I'm not so poor that I can't give. I'm rich. I can give. I can give and help there. I can give and help there. Thank you, God. You've given me enough to help somebody else. And now your contentment level rises. Poor people become rich, where rich people, with their discontentment, become poor. We'll close with this quote. Generosity breaks the chokehold lie that I need more to be happy. Don't be choked by the lie. Be generous. Take hold of life. Now let me finish what he just, I don't think I read verse 19. Read verse 19 with me. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Sometimes we're just living and we're living for the kingdom of me, the kingdom of me, and what God says is that's not life. That's not truly life. You're gonna experience a contentment level, a joy level, a blessing level that just rises sky high and the more joy there is when you're living for a kingdom that's not your kingdom. And your contentment level, your joy level increases as you begin to, not just with your money, but with your sharing, with your volunteering, with your time, you're starting to live for a whole different kingdom. Now you've gotten a hold of life, which is truly life. It's like, so much better. This is good. I wake up in the morning thinking life is good. I wake up in the morning thinking I don't have anything to fear. God is on my side. I love God. I'm living for God. I'm living for his kingdom. If I die today, oh well. Eternity is mine. This is truly life. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we uh, need life. We need to let go of that which is choking us. We need to be generous the way you asked us to be generous. We need to have eyes open. And like a loving, caring five-year-old, caring for another five-year-old, God, we need to have our eyes open and look for ways to 
make a difference. Lord, you've told us about making a difference in your kingdom and how we're to seek first your kingdom and that you'll add all the rest if we seek you first. Lord, we want to learn how to walk in that, how to bless you and to be blessed. And God, we will say this. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sending your son Jesus. We cry out, I need a savior. I need a savior for my self-centeredness. I need a savior who provides for me not just salvation as it relates to eternity and the future, but salvation as it relates to right now in my contentment, right now in my ability to live outside of my kingdom. God, thank you. You died for me. I am living for you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.